All right, let's talk about the Pardoner's Prologue and Tale. Uh, we start at the introduction. The, the host is very upset by the last story that has been told. That was the, the physician told a, a story about a, a, a man who uh, murdered his own daughter rather than allow her to be, uh, to be raped. Uh, so not exactly a happy story. And uh, it, it's really upset the, the host and says that, you know, he wants to have something uh, better. Uh, he says, God bless him and our Lady St. Mary, so what I seen thou art a proper man, and like a prelate by St. Ronian, said I not well, I cannot speak in term. This is, he's praising the physician, and he calls him by St. Ronian, uh, which is kind of a mix-up of St. Ronan and St. Ninian. Uh, a Runyon was a slang term in the Middle Ages for um, the sexual organ. Uh, so he didn't quite get that right. He says, uh, But will I woot thou dost mine heart to earn that uh, I almost have caught a carticle by corpus bones, but if I have a, a treacle or else a drought of moist and corny ale... He said, I've got to, by, uh, by grace bones, uh, there's a common curse in the Middle Ages, uh, I, I, I need a drink. And then he turns to the pardoner and says, Thou, bel ami, thou pardoner, he said, tell us some mirth or japes, right anon. It shall be done, quoth he, by St. Runyon. Now, notice already the, the pardoner is picking up on that uh, uh, that mistake that the host made, St. Runyon, is a, a kind of a, uh, you know, making fun of him there, kind of a contemptuous uh, echoing of what he said there, but it's very subtle. And he says, well, of course, I'll tell you a story. He said, but first, here at this ale steak, I will both drink and eat, of eaten of a cake. Uh, and right anon, these gentles began to cry, Nay, let him tell us of no ribaldry. Tell us some moral thing that we may learn, some wit, and then will we gladly hear. I grant you this, quoth he, but I might think upon some honest thing while that I drink. So they're saying, the host says, oh, tell us, tell us a funny story to get that sad story out of our mind. And the, the group of people say, no, we don't want to hear any, you know, dirty story like the Miller's Tale. Uh, tell us something moral that we can, that will instruct us, that we can learn from. And the partner says, okay, well, I, I'll think about that while I'm getting drunk. Uh, so even before the, the tale starts, we get this dichotomy between the the morality of the pardoner and the morality of the tale that he's telling. He's going to tell them a moral tale while he's having a drink. Um, so he starts his prologue, and his prologue is is, is uh, uh, autobiographical in a way. He's telling them this is how I usually you know conduct my business. Um, in churches, when I preach, I pain me to hand uh, a haunting speech and ring it out as round as goeth a bell, for I can all by rote the rota that I tell. So I know I know everything by heart. I just uh, don't even think about what I'm saying. My theme is always one, and ever was redix malorum est cupiditas. Now that's a, a Latin phrase. Avarice is the root of evil. We say the love of money is the root of all evil. Um, so that's always the theme that he preaches on. Um, 
And he says, you know, he, he introduces himself, says where he comes from, how why he has a right to uh, talk there. He says, then show I forth my uh, long crystal stones, these jars, crystal jars he has. He crammed full of clouters and of bones, so bones and rags he's got in these crystal jars. Relics being they, as ween they, everyone, they, at least all of them believe so. Then have I in lantern and in brass a shoulder bone, which that was of an holy Jewish sheep. Good men, I say, take of my word as keep. If that this bone be washed in any well, if cow or calf or sheep or ox is swell, then any worm hath et or worm you stung. Take water of that well and wash his tongue, and it is whole and on. So it's, it's a magic relics that he's selling. You you put this in the water, and that water will cure snake bites and uh, illness and, uh, you know, indigestion, whatever it is. This sounds like, the you know, the miracle products that you hear about on infomercials. You know, it'll cure everything. Uh, he's, he's like a snake oil salesman. Uh, but apparently he, he gets people to buy these things. Then he has, uh, the other one he has, the line 85, here is a mitten, eek, that you may see that... Uh, that he that his hand will put in this mitten, he shall have multiplying of his grain. So you you put on this glove and you 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 have a bumper crop, um, and he tells them that you know they've got to uh, uh, buy his indulgences, his pardons before they, these magical things will work and so therefore he has a way out because if they don't work he says well there was some sin you didn't confess and you didn't get buy a pardon from me so that's why it didn't work and he's very honest about his motives here he says line 115 for my intent is not but for to win and no thing for a correction of sin says, I'm, I'm not interested in uh, uh, saving their souls. I just want their money. He says, I, reek, uh, I, I care never when that they be buried, though that their souls go on the black buried, whether they've gone to hell. For certain, many a predication cometh oft of evil intention. And that's an interesting uh, justification here. He says, well, just because I'm evil doesn't mean they couldn't get some good out of it. Um, and, but he, he tells all of the, you know, his, his, the tricks of the trade here, as he says, I spit out my venom under hue of holiness, um, to seem holy and true, but shortly mine intent I will devise. I, this is around line 135. I preach of no thing but for covetes. Therefore, my theme is yet and ever was redix melorum est cupiditas. Thus can I preach against that same vice which that I use, and that is avarice. But though myself be guilty in that sin, yet can I make other folk to twin from avarice, and soar to repent. But that is not my principal intent. I preach no thing but for covetes. Of this matter I ought you enough fees. Uh, so again, He's justifying himself, well, just because I'm bad, somebody might hear this and have an honest spiritual repentance and it might be good for them. I actually don't care about that. All I want to, is for them to you know, buy my stuff and give me money. Um, he says, uh, I tell them examples, many one of old stories, long time ago, for lewd people love and tale is old. 
So I always, I'm always telling these, you know, rip roaring stories because you know these these hicks all like the, uh, the the good a good story. So you see this uh, this you know withering contempt that the pardoner has for these people that he's fleecing, um, and again he has no um, no compunctions here about telling what his real motives are. He says, line 160, I will have money, wool, cheese, and wheat, and were it given of the poorest page or of the poorest widow in, in a village, all should her, their children starve for famine. Nay, I will drink liquor of the vine and have a jolly winch in every town. But hearkeneth, lordlings, in conclusion, your liking is that I shall tell a tale. Now have I drunk a draught of corny ale? By God, I hope I shall you tell a thing that shall by reason be at your liking. For though myself be a full vicious man, a moral tale, yet I you tell it can. Uh, so again, he says, I live sinfully, and I don't care if I get the last penny out of the poorest widow in the church. It doesn't. So what? I get to have uh, my fun. So he starts his tale, and this is the, the kind of the sermon that he would he would go around preaching in churches to get people to uh, uh, buy his pardons. Um, and he starts off line one seventy five. I mean, Flanders Willem was a company of young folk that hardened folly as riot, hazard, stews, and taverns. All right, so this, these are a bunch of party guys. They're, they're out riding, partying. Uh, the stews are brothels, taverns. They're out on, on, in bars. Um, and it says, our, our blessed Lord, his body they tore uh, by swearing. Um, he says, uh, line 195, The holy writ take I to my witness that luxury is in wine and drunkenness. Lo, how that drunken lot unkindly lay by his daughters too unwittingly he drunk so drunk he was that he missed not what he wrought so here he's preaching against drunkenness and the very first scriptural example he takes is very interesting he says uh, you you get drunk you do all kinds of of sinful things think about lot lot got drunk and slept with his own daughters well that's true that's in the bible but his daughters got him drunk because they wanted him to sleep with them so that they, he would have an heir and children. Now, okay, that's probably sinful, but it's not a simple story about the evils of drunkenness. Uh, consistently, the partner gets his Bible stories a little bit wrong. He's twisting them to make them fit uh, the, the message. Uh, look at the next one. Herod who uh, so well the story sought, when he of wine was replete at his feast, right at his own table, he gave his hest to slay in John the Baptist, full guiltiness. Well, yes, Herod did order the execution of John the Baptist, but it was because Salome was so beautiful in her dance that he promised to do anything she wanted and she asked for the head. It actually had nothing to do with drunkenness. Uh, repeatedly, his, his biblical uh, analogies are are off. Um, next, he turns from drunkenness to gluttony, line 210. O gluttony, O cause first of our confusion, of or, O original of our damnation. Um, 
He says, Corrupt was all the world for gluttony. Adam, our father, and his wife also, from paradise to labor and to woe, were driven for that vice. It is no dread, no doubt. Now again, this is a kind of, he's talking about the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve ate the apple. Well, that was gluttony. Well, not really. I mean, theologically, that's a pretty shaky argument. Gluttony is not the reason that they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. But again, he's twisting all of this to, to fit his, uh, uh, his message. Look at uh, line 246. O womb, O belly, O stinking cod, fulfilled of dung and of corruption, at either end of thee foul is the sound. How great labor and cost is is thee to find. Uh, So he's talking about the, you know, how repulsive our physical appetites are. And again, this is a guy who's, you know, has just been, you know, stuffing himself at the tavern and drinking beer. Um, the, the irony, the hypocrisy of it is very strong. Also, you know, the, the sins that he focuses on, um, drunkenness, gluttony, uh, gambling, he'll talk about in a minute, uh, these are all very physical sins. He doesn't talk about spiritual sins. Uh, He doesn't talk about the most serious sins. He doesn't talk about murder. Uh, He doesn't talk about pride. He doesn't talk about uh, uh, not believing in God, any of those kinds of things. Um, He's focused on more kind of everyday sins because those will hit people where they live. And it also suggests that he doesn't really have a spiritual understanding of, of internalized sin. For him, it's all an external action that you do if you're drinking or eating or gambling. That's sinful. He, the partner doesn't recognize the internal psychology of sin. Uh, he just sees the outward manifestations. Um, He says one thing, around line 270, he's talking about uh, drunkenness. For drunkenness is very sepulcher of man's wit and his discretion. In whom that drink hath domination, he can no counsel keep. It is no dread, no doubt. Uh, Well, that's interesting because one of the explanations for why the, the partner is willing to explain all of the things he did in his prologue is because he'd been drinking too much, has kind of loosened his tongue and he told them things that he probably, the other pilgrims things that he probably shouldn't have. Um, So he goes on, he talks about hazardry around line 300, gambling. Um, And it goes on and gives examples of that. Swearing, line uh, 345, he says, oh, great swearing is a thing abominable, and false swearing is yet more reprovable. Uh, the high God forbade swearing at all, witness on Matthew. Um, again, he takes these, these things, a physical action of swearing, and taking the names, taking God's name in vain, uh, but he doesn't see any spiritual meaning to that. It's just a physical action. You say the words, and that's wrong. Um, again, he has a very debased understanding of, of theology. So after, in his story, he's been kind of railing against these sins, and he gets back to the main part of the story. He says, now will I tell forth my tale? 
um, he gets back to the, the rioters, the three rioters. They hear a, a bell chiming, and uh, it's for a funeral. It says, what corpse is that that passes here forby? And they ask their servant, and the boy says, it needeth never deal. It was uh, me told ere that she came here two hours. He was, pardee, of an old fellow of yours. And sudden he was slain tonight, for drunk, as he sat on his bench upright, there came a privy thief, men clepeth death, that in this country all the people slayeth, and slays, and with his spear he smote his heart too, and went his way without an word is more. He has a thousand slain, this pestilence. Um, so, now the the servant is talking metaphorically. You know, death came and, and took him. Um, but look at the reaction that the rioters have. They say, line 405, um, it is such peril with him for to meet, as it is so perilous to meet this guy death. I shall him seek by way and eke by street. I make a vow to God's dingy bones, worthy bones. Hearkeneth, fellows, we three be all ones. Let each of us hold up his hand to other, and each of us become other's brother. And we will steal in this false traitor death. He shall be slain, he that so many slayeth, by God's dignity, ere it be night. Uh, so they're taking very literally the idea that death is oh, the death killed our friend. Well, we'll just go out and kill death, and that'll solve that. Uh, interestingly, like the pardoner, they don't they see everything on a, on a very literal, physical level. They don't understand the they don't understand metaphor. Uh, also, like the pardoner, they seem to be impaired because they're drunk. Um, he says together. And these uh, three, their troth's plight, they, they swear an oath to live and dine, each of them with other. So they go out, they're looking for, for death, um, and they meet an old man, line 425, uh, an, an old man and poor with them met. Um, and they ask him, the proudest of the rioters, three, answered again, what, Carl? With sorry grace, why art thou all for rapid, save thy face? Why livest thou so long in so great age? You know, he's looking at him and says, damn, you're old. What's, how did you get so old? Um, the old man again looked in his uh, visage and said thus, For, because I can not find a man, though that I walked into end, into India, neither in city nor in village, that would change his youth for mine age. He says, why are you so old? He says, you know, I've looked all over for a young man who would trade being young for, with me for being old. But, you know, nobody's willing to take that, uh, that bet. Uh, and therefore, what I hand mine age still as long uh, time as it is God's will. Nor, de nor death, alas, no will not have my life. Thus walk I like a restless caitiff, or a wretch, and on the ground, which is my mother's gate, I knock with my staff, both early and late, and say, Levy, mother, let me in. Lo, how I vanish, flesh and blood and skin. Alas, when shall my bones be at rest? Um, so this is a guy who's, you know, he's really ready for death. He's lived a long time. He would, he would welcome 
death, and it hasn't come for him. Now, again, the rioters take him very literally. They say, uh, line 465, Thou speakest right now of thilk traitor death, that in this country all our friends slay us. Uh, have here my troth, as thou art his, unless you are his spy, tell where he is, or thou shalt it abide. And by God and by the holy sacrament, forsoothly, thou art one of his ascent to slain us young folk, thou false thief. Look, if you don't tell us where death is, you must be on his side. And the old man says, Now, sirs, quoth he, if that ye be so lief to find a death, turn up this crooked way, for in that grove I left him by my fay under a tree, and there he will abide. Um, he says, oh, you want to find death? Okay, go up the road here, go to the big tree, and look under that tree. You'll find death there. Uh, again, the the old man is talking figuratively. They take him literally. Literally, they're going to find death. Well, of course, what is it they do find there? They go, they look, and every one of these rioters ran till that until he came to that tree, and there they found a florence fine of gold, ye coined round, well nigh an eight bushel, as them thought. No longer then after death they sought, but each of them so glad was of the sight, for that the florins had been so fair and bright, that down they set him by this precious hoard, the worst of them he spake, the first a word. So, kind of an ironic line there, it says that they found this gold, and then they weren't looking for death anymore, because they don't know it, but they found death. This is going to be the death of them. So they sit down, and they've, they've got to come up with a plan of how to take get get this death get this death get this money home uh, line 496 uh, but might this gold be carried from this place home to mine house or or else unto yours for well you wot that this all this gold is ours then were we in high felicity but truly by day it may not be men would say that we were thieves strong and for our own treasure do us arm uh, this treasure most ye care, must be carried ye by night, and wisely and as slyly as it might. So they're saying, look, if we go into the into town with this gold, people will think that we're thieves, and they'll try to take this gold that we've stolen from us. Um, so they're they're going to draw straws and see one of them will go into town and uh, you know bring back some food so they can just stay out here and then at night they can sneak into town with the gold they can you know they've got a good plan here and says so one of them shall run to the town and that full swithe quickly and bring us bread and wine full privily. Um, and it turns out that the youngest one is the one who draws the straw and he goes off to town. Um, and then the other two, the older two, are left there. And one of them asks, line 525, If I can shape it so that it departed were among this gold, were departed among us two, had I not done a friend's turn to thee? And he says, you know, if I could figure out a way, well, we didn't have to divide this gold three ways, but only two ways, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be good? 
Um, and says, well, yeah, that'd be great. How are we going to do it? Well, when he comes back, we're going to kill him. Line 540. I shall rive him through the sidest tway. I'll, I'll stab him while that thou strugglest with him, as in game, and with thy dagger look thou do the same. And then shall all this gold departed be, my dear friend, betwixt thee and me. Then we might both our lusts all fulfill, and play at dice right at our own will. And thus accorded been these, shrew these shrews tway to slain the third, as ye had heard me say. So they're thinking, hey, these two, we, we can have more of the treasure this way. All we have to do is kill this guy, our friend. Um, so the youngest is going into town, and he's thinking, O oh Lord, quoth he, if so uh, were I thy if uh, Let me start over. O oh Lord, quoth he, if so were that I might have all this treasure to myself alone, there is no man that liveth under throne of God that should so, should live so merrily as I. Now he's thinking the same thing. If there was some way where I could have all the gold, but again, ironically, he says it as a prayer. Oh Lord, you know, if I would have this gold, I would be the happiest man alive. Um, and so he says, well, how can I do it? Well, I'll buy some poison. Um, for this uh, line five sixty one, for this was outwardly his full intent to slay them both and never to repent. So he finds an apothecary, a, a druggist, uh, who is going to sell him some some poison um, for for rats. There's some rats, he says, he has to kill, uh, and he got he gets a, a large bottles three, and in the two. His poison poured he, the third he kept clean for his drink. So he's bringing them food, and he's got three bottles of wine. He pours the poison in their bottles of wine and keeps his without. That way he can he can poison them. For all the, uh, this is line five eighty six. For all the night he shoop him for the uh, for to swink or to work in carrying of the gold out of that place. And when this rioter, with sorry grace, had filled with with wine his great bottles three, to his fellows again repaireth he. What needeth it the sermon of it more? That's the narrator, the, the partner's very ironic line. Well, I don't have to tell you what happened next, do I? I mean, I've, it's all set up here. We know what's going to happen next. For right as they had cast his death before, right so they had him slain, and that anon. And when this was done, they spoke the, uh, that one, Now let us sit and drink, and make us merry, and afterwards we will his body bury. And with that word it happened, by him perchance, to take the bottle there the poison was, and drank, and gave his fellow drink also, for which anon they stroven both the two. So they all kill each other. Uh, the, the two guys stab the, the one who went into town, and the one who went into town has the poison wine that kills his two murderers. Uh, so everybody's murdered. And the, the partner has a, a, a big, uh, big finish to the sermon, line 607. 
O cursed sin of all cursedness, O traitorous homicide, O wickedness, O gluttony, luxury, and hazardry, thou blasphemer of Christ with villainy, and other great of usage and of pride, alas, mankind, how may it bide to that to thy Creator, which thou which that thee wrought, and with his precious heart's blood thee bought, thou art so false and so unkind, alas. Now, good men, God forgive you your trespass, and wear you from the sin of avarice. Mine holy pardon, may you all wear us, may you all save. Um, so he ends, you know, and Jesu, Jesu Christ, it is our soul's leech, our physician, so grant you his pardon to receive, for that is best, I will you not deceive. So he he ends it, you know, telling them about the sin of wickedness. And here I've got the pardons, and your sins can be pardoned, and this horrible fate won't happen to you. Now, reading the tale, knowing who the the teller is, gives us a very different spin on it. If if this we didn't have the, the the prologue, we just heard this sermon it would seem like a very straightforward sermon. Now, there'd be some anomalies. I think some of the, the, as I said, the biblical analogies are a little bit uh, weak in places. But certainly you would see it as, in intent, a moral story. But we know that it's not because we know what the real motives of the pardoner are, uh, why he's telling this story. Uh, He doesn't believe a word of it. and the, look at what he does in the epilogue. He says, I have relics and pardons in my mail, in my bag. He says, you know, I just happen to have some of those relics and some of my pardons right here. Um, and, and he says, you should uh, come forth anon and kneeleth here adown and meekly receiveth my pardon. Um, he says, you're, you're, you're lucky that you have a, a sufficient pardoner to assoil you in in, uh, in countries as you ride. Um, line 650, Look which assurity it is to you all that I am in your fellowship, you fall, that may assoil you both more and less when that the soul shall from the body pass. I read that our host shall begin, for he is most enveloped in sin. Come forth, sir host, and offer first anon, and thou shalt kiss the relics, every one, ye for a groat, yes, for a groat, unbuckle anon thy purse. So he's still trying to do his, his selling job here. He says, uh, um, no, uh, you, can, you can buy my pardons, you can, you can buy the relics, you can kiss the relics, you can get the uh, uh, absolution, same as everybody else. And the host does not respond the way that we presume most of the congregations respond when when the pardoner makes this sermon. He says, Nay, nay, quoth he, then have I Christus curse. Let be, quoth he, it shall not be uh, be so thench that thou wouldst make me kiss thine old breech and swear it were a relic of a saint, though it were in thy fundament to paint. He said, it's like asking me to kiss your soiled underwear. He says, but by the cross, which uh, that 
St. Elaine found, I would I had thy cullions in mine hand instead of relics or of sanctuary, I'd cut them off. I will thee help them carry. They shall be shrined in a hog's turd. So what he's saying is, I'm going to cut your balls off and stick them in a, in a hog's, in hog shit. Um, that's not the reaction that the, uh, the pardoner is used to getting, right? Of course, the reaction is different now because he's given away the game. He's told them before he started that it was all a, a trick. It was all a, a, a con. It's all a scam. And the pardoner reacts that way. Look at the, the host reacts that way. The pardoner's uh, reaction this partner answered not a word, so wroth he was, no word no would he say. He's literally left speechless. Now, he's obviously quite a good speaker. He makes his, he makes his living giving this sermon and getting people to, to buy things from him. He's a salesman, but he has nothing to say now. And the host says, I will no longer play with thee, no, with none other angry man. But right anon, the worthy knight began, when that he saw that all the, the people laughed, uh, No more of this, for it is right enough, Sir Pardoner, be glad and merry of cheer. And ye, Sir Host, that hath been to me so dear, I uh, pray you that you kiss the Pardoner. And Pardoner, I pray thee, draw thee near. And as we didn't, let us laugh and play. Anon they kissed and rode forth their way. So the knight has to come in and you know, literally say kiss and make up. Um, well, again, one of the things this story that all of the Canterbury Tales we've read do is raise issues about how we evaluate stories. Uh, the partner says in his prologue that even though he's an immoral man, he can tell a moral tale. Well, th this raises the question, is it? Is it still a moral tale when we know he's an immoral person? Could somebody, you know, it might be that if somebody didn't know, they could hear this and feel genuine repentance and, and come to God. But if you know the background, could you still? It doesn't look like it from how the host reacts. But it, uh, it, it raises the same kind of question that we had with the Miller's Tale. Is this a good story? Well, the Miller's Tale was not a, a moral story, but it was a good, well-told story. Um, and you can ask about the partner's tale. Is it a moral story? Well, yes and no. It, it, it is um, it's a moral story out of context, but in the context of who's telling it, it ceases to be. It becomes a, almost a parody. Um, and what the what the partner does and what the, the rioters in his story do is bring everything down to such a, a literal, non-spiritual level that it has no no meaning, no resonance. Um, the, the partner is is a debaser of things. He brings it, brings things down. Uh, he almost breaks up the the Canterbury Tales again. The knight has to step in and and tell him how to tell them how to uh, reconcile. All right. Um, I want to talk just uh, just for a minute about the Canterbury Tales in general. Uh, remember that the 
the game, the the contest was was the the tale that had best sentence and most solace. That was the most meaningful, the moral tale that was instructive, and the delightful one, the one that was fun. Um, and think about how each of the tales we've read, the Miller's Tale, the Wife's Tale, and the Partner's Tale, meet up with those. You can't simply apply those things. It's not like they get each of them gets a score for sentence and a score for solace, and we add them up and average them up, and now we have the winner. Uh, Chaucer keeps introducing new wrinkles to it. One of the things that, for instance, that makes The Wife of Bath's Tale so great is the way it reveals her character and gives us insight into her as a person. Well, how does that fit in that scale? It really doesn't. Um, the, the Canterbury Tales keep uh, gesturing towards that uh, that way of evaluating stories, but they also keep introducing new variables. Uh, again, the, the the Miller's Tale is not a good, ta- not a moral tale, but it's very entertaining. Well, how do you how do you judge that? Um, the the Partner's Tale. We're not even sure whether we'd call it a moral tale or not. It depends on how you look at it. And so one of the kind of brilliant things that Chaucer does and is, is, is Canterbury Tales is a set of stories about telling stories. It's a, if, about how we evaluate stories, what stories mean to us. Uh, some stories are great because they make us laugh. Uh, some stories are great because they give us insight into the human condition. Uh, some stories are, are, are great because they give us a moral. Uh, all of those things can be true, and it's hard to imagine how you you judge them against each other. It's kind of like, you know, when they give out the Academy Awards, uh, they have films that are so different, you know, that you've got a comedy and a, a tragedy up for best picture. How, how do you evaluate? Which one is the best picture? Well, it's... it's um, it's not that it's all a matter of taste. It's that there's so many variables and so many different systems of value we use to evaluate these things that you can't make a, a simple judgment uh, of, you know, put them on a numerical scale or something like that. Um, so that's one of the things that the Canterbury Tales does is it's very self-conscious about the nature of stories and storytelling and how we evaluate them. It's also uh, a, a very great in the way it uses its characters. Uh, the the again the wife of Bath is probably the most uh, complex, but all of the the, the partner too is a, a it's a very interesting character study. And you know, figure out well why why did he try to sell relics to the pilgrims? Did he just get carried away? With you know he he's so used to doing this by rote as he says that he forgot that he had already given away the game. Is it the fact that he was drunk? Um, is it the fact that this contempt that he obviously has for the people that he he preaches to uh, was so great that he thought well even though I've told them uh, my game they're so stupid they'll still buy my relics. Um, well, any of those theories, and there are others as well, uh, might might fit. Um, and again, that's what makes a an interesting character. Uh, there, there's not a kind of a simple 
a two-dimensional explanation for them. The partner is definitely that way. The wife of Bath is very much that way. I think the Miller uh, is is a, a more two-dimensional character, but I think even he, uh, especially if you read the, all of the, the Canterbury Tales, has some, some a little more dimension to him. Uh, but those... Uh, those elements of the kind of self-referential thinking about stories and the creation of very interesting, very complicated characters uh, are the things that really set apart the the Canterbury Tales. Uh, But that's all that we're going to be reading. There are are a lot more that are worth reading. Uh, But we're going to be moving on to the Renaissance, uh, and the language should be a little bit easier. The, the spell, for one thing, the spelling will be modernized, and that will help. And it's uh, the language has moved on a few centuries, so it, that will uh, that will help as well. The assignment for next time is to read uh, some selections by uh, Sir Thomas Wyatt and uh, Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey. They're just he's just referred to as Surrey. That's his his lordly title. Uh, these are two of the uh, early use. They introduced between them the the sonnet into English literature. The sonnet was an Italian and later continental uh, genre, uh, but they were the first ones really to write in sonnet form in English. And many of their poems are translations of Petrarch, who was the great Italian sonneteer. Uh, now, I've, I've put this in the uh, syllabus uh, list of the poems. For Wyatt, you need to read The Long Love That In My Thought Doth Harbor, Whoso List to Hunt, Farewell Love, I Find No Peace, My Galley, Diverse Doth Use, They Flee From Me, and... The lover showeth how he is forsaken of such as he sometimes enjoyed. Now that last one, that last very clunky title, is really just another version of the previous poem, They Flee From Me. And one of the things I want you to do as you're reading this is look at the differences between those. The second one is one that an editor, he kind of wanted to tidy up Wyatt's meter and and kind of regularize things. And I want you to notice the, the changes he makes and especially in the last stanza of that poem, and how they they alter the meaning of the poem. We'll be looking at that very closely. There's a handout that has those two poems side by side that you can look at. Uh, Then for Surrey, uh, you'll read The Suit Season, Love That Doth Reign and Live Within My Thought, Alas, So All Things Now Do Hold Their Peace, The Assyrian King in Peace with Foul Desire, and a, a little section from Surrey's translation of, of the fourth book of Virgil. This is from the, the Aeneid. Uh, it's a, a portion about Dido. Um, when you're reading these poems, uh, the reading, there's not as, there are not as many lines, not as many words to read in this section, but you need to read and reread the poems. You need to read the poems aloud, read them slowly, read them carefully. And in several places, several of them are translations of uh, Petrarch's sonnets. And the Norton Anthology provides a prose 
uh, translation of those poems. So read those as well and think about how Wyatt and Surrey have uh, adapted those poems, how they've changed them. Some of the translations seem very close to the original. Some seem very far from the original. And think about what they're doing differently, how they're using that. We're going to be talking a lot next time about the sonnet as a genre and how Wyatt and Surrey, and later we'll see other poets, use that that poetic genre. Uh, so be thinking about that. Uh, read, the, read the poems. Read the poems out loud. Poetry was made to be read out loud. Uh, so read them out loud, uh, and we'll talk more about them next time. Uh, should you have any questions, my email address is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.